morning, Harmony. My wife made me promise to have a stool up here this morning, so I'm being a good boy. And there's the stool. Uh, thank you, everybody, for all the prayers and uh, messages of, of love and healing. Uh, it was very humbling uh, just to have so many people praying for me. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Uh, feeling a lot better. Uh, no more nerve pain. Uh, now, now's the hard part. Now I got to be disciplined and listen to the doctors and uh, not do too much, and then also get rid of all of this wonderful, wonderful baby fat <laughs> that has just piled up uh, over the last six months. So I thank you for your prayers uh, and thank you for all of that, and very excited about uh, how my health is looking and, and where we're going. Um, so with with me trying to get motivated, I was thinking about this week. You know, does anybody have any movies that they like watch when they want to be inspired? You ever have those? For me, it's basically the entire Rocky series. I mean, Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, we don't act like 5 exists. That, does, that was a bad movie. I pretend that it wasn't there. But those first four, like, I, I think I could recite the entire films for you. Uh, the amount of times I've watched those over and over again. And there's one particular scene that I've always enjoyed quite a bit. It's, it's in the middle of Rocky 2. And if you haven't seen this series, it is not gospel, but have some culture people. Go home, put in Rocky, watch the series, you'll be the better for it. Uh, but in Rocky 2, Rocky has this moment where he's wondering about whether he's going to fight anymore. See, in the first movie, he has nothing. He has absolutely nothing in life. So he's got this fire, and he's got this energy, and he's got this passion because there's nothing for him to lose. So he can be a boxer, and he can give everything he's got, and the worst case is that he ends up a bum just like he was at the beginning of the film. And so he's this dangerous person because there's nothing to lose. But in the second film, things have changed. Now he's got a reputation. He's got respect from the community. He's got a wife. He's got a baby. And his health isn't in a great place. And so now he's scared because going to fight, he actually has things to lose. Before if he died in the ring, who cares? Yeah, that was his call. But now he's sitting there in this whole first part of the movie, he's struggling with this change to his life where now he has something. He has something valuable and the fear of losing that something valuable is stopping him from moving forward. And there's this wonderful scene where they're in the hospital, he's been worried about how his wife's doing. She wakes up and as always in a Rocky film, Rocky needs to hear from Adrian that it's okay to fight. It's how all of them work. And so she wakes up and she looks at him and she goes, there's one thing I want you to do. And he's like, what, what? And she goes, win. And immediately the Rocky music starts. The old trainer looks at him and goes, well, what are we waiting for? And the whole movie switches from that moment because as soon as she said it was good, what could he do? He could let go of that baggage and he could start moving forward. He could have that full force, throw himself in, and tackle things. And today, I kind of hope this passage we go through will be a much more effective version than Rocky II of telling you that exact same message. That you and I as Christians, you and I as disciples, this is not us doing our work. Right? Church is a beautiful place where you and I come together, we recharge, we worship, we focus on the Word, we focus on God, but this isn't the work. The work is outside those doors. Amen. 
The work is you and I being disciples on fire, pursuing the kingdom, building the kingdom, and spreading the gospel. But to be honest, I feel like sometimes we're like Rocky at the beginning of that movie where we know that. We know that. We know it's more than this. But we're still kind of not doing anything about it. And so what I want to do is I want to look today at Gideon's story, which is found in Judges chapter 6. And I want you to pay attention to what God does in Gideon's life. And I want you to look at how God calls Gideon because there's some very important lessons that one teach us about the character of our God, but also then we can take those lessons and apply them to our own lives. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Judges chapter 6. And that's where we're going to start the story of Gideon. As you're flipping there, I encourage you, always remember when you're reading Scripture that besides what you're trying to take out of it, the first and foremost thing you should do is remember what God's saying to the people he originally wrote this for. Let's just be real. We're very selfish individuals, all of us, me included. And so when we read the Word or we hear a message, the first thing we do is go, what does this mean to me? What does this mean for me? And sometimes we need to put that on hold a little bit and go, what does this just mean about who God is? What does this just say about his character? What does this say about his awesomeness? And then from there, we can start to extrapolate those lessons of what we should do in our own lives. But first and foremost, dig in not for what he's talking to you about, but what is he saying in this moment to these people in this story? And so in Judges chapter 6, we catch up with Israel at a low point. Israel has been oppressed by this nation called Midian. They are not in a powerful position. Uh, the people have been hurt and oppressed, and it's just not a good time for them. And so in chapter 6 it says this, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midians for seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And so what God's saying is, is God had been with the nation of Israel. They had been obeying him and following him and he had been leading them to victory. Over time, they pulled away from God and wanted to do their own thing. Which, let's just be real, how natural is that in our own lives, right? You ever hit those moments where you foolishly get arrogant and go like, God, I got this. You know what? Why don't you help some of those other people that need help? I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well right now. And what you don't realize in that moment is the only reason things have been going well is because God's been carrying you, not because you've been doing it yourself. And so for seven years, basically, they get to be their own gods. Israel runs their own way. And what happens is Midian oppresses them. And so now we have a people in hiding. They're hiding in the mountains. They're hiding in caves. They're trying to not be seen. And it says in verse 3, For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. And so they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. And so this, this army is just decimating Israel. They're wiping out their crops. They're wiping out their livestock. If they see you're there, if they see you have stuff, they're coming in and they're stripping all of it out. And so this has humbled Israel to a very low point. 
It says, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on the account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you gave them your land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Johas the Aborite, who is the son of Gideon. And he was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord had abandoned us and has given us into the hands of the Midians. And so interesting little start to this dialogue, right? So Gideon is in a wine press taking care of his crops. Now, why is he doing that? Why is he in a wine press taking care of his crops? He's doing that because it's under the ground. And so if his enemies are surveying the land, they do not see him farming from a distance so that they can come and steal his crops. This is how the Israelites are working. They do everything in hiding. They do everything out of visual sight because they're afraid. And so Gideon, in the midst of doing this task, which must have been humbling, must have been kind of scared for him because he knew if he was caught doing this, he'd probably be injured or hurt. In the midst of this, the angel of the Lord appears, looks at Gideon and says what? You, almighty mighty warrior. This is the equivalent of you hiding underneath your bed shivering and God shows up and goes, you mighty one, let's go. Gideon hears these words and it doesn't make sense to him. Mighty warrior? (laughs) Do you know who you're talking to? Do you even see what I'm doing right now? But there is no sarcasm in what God's saying. God is not sarcastically calling Gideon this. God is able to see past the circumstances that currently surround you to see the essence of who you really are. See, brothers and sisters, this is one of the beautiful things about following God, is that you and I, our vision's terrible. So when you and I assess ourselves, we tend to do that by what we can perceive and see at this moment, right now, in the circumstances around us. And so part of the evaluation that you and I tend to make about our own capabilities and lives is all in temporary circumstances that can change at a whim. And so like Gideon, he looks around and goes, here I am in hiding, here I am poor, here I am weak, here I am as part of a weak nation and a weak people, thus I am weak. I'm a wimp, I am nothing, I have no value. He is judging himself not by who God shaped in his mother's womb. He is judging himself by the circumstances that are around him. And that is the difference. When God looks at Gideon, God is not looking at the circumstances that surround Gideon. God is looking at the spirit that he shaped in his mother's womb. He is looking at the soul that he intricately weaved together and that he put on this earth with a purpose and for a reason. 
God is not confused that because he is in darkness that that means he is nothing. Rather, God can see past all of that and he sees the truth of who Gideon is despite the circumstances that surround him. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, this is continually something we see throughout Scripture. Think throughout Scripture how often God comes to one of his children and calls them to a mighty task. And the first thing from those people is, not me. I, I can't do that. Do you know what kind of fool I am? Do you know what kind of coward I am? Do you know what my history is? Do you know the dark things I've done? Do you know the weaknesses I have? It's amazing how God, who knows infinitely more even than ourselves, almost always has a brighter vision of what we are capable of than ourselves. And it's because God, as your creator, is not looking at what surrounds you. He's looking at you. I always love that moment when Moses looks at him and tells him, but I, I, I don't speak well. And God goes, who gave you your tongue? Amen. You arguing with God about what you were capable of is the dumbest, most fruitless argument you can ever have. He made you. He is infinitely more aware of what you are capable of than you are. And that is what we're starting to see in this opening moment of God approaching Gideon and going, mighty warrior. Immediately we have a moment of faith where Gideon is going to have to ask himself, do I take the word of God or do I take my own perception? Now, what's interesting in this is Gideon, while having a low self-esteem, is actually being unbelievably arrogant. And typically we think those things aren't true. We typically think if I have low self-esteem, that means I am a humble person. But that's not true. I can't think of a thing in this world that is more arrogant than standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, hearing from Him and going, you're wrong. Like just pause for a second. Tell me if you can think of anything more arrogant than standing in front of God, the creator of the universe, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-perfect, looking him in the face and going, no, you're wrong, I'm right. I can't think of anything more arrogant. The only thing that's different here is what they're arguing about is what they're capable of. Gideon has brought in that he is incapable that he has no power, that he has no value. And he believes that so much, he is willing to argue God about that. And so, brothers and sisters, when you read the passages in the Bible that talk about the need for you and I to be humble, the need for us to be lowly in spirit, the need for us not to think of ourselves greater than everybody else, that is not an excuse for you to think of yourself as without value. Amen. And frankly, to be a Christian who thinks you have no value is one of the most arrogant things you can possibly do. Why? Christ came to die for you. God thinks you're so valuable, He was willing to sacrifice His life for you. So for you then to look at Him and go, nope, I bring no value. 
you're not just arguing with His words. You are arguing with the greatest, most sacrificial action He could have ever made. It doesn't get more arrogant than that. Don't be pulled in to just evaluate yourself by your circumstances. Evaluate yourself more properly by who does God say you are. That's where the value comes. The other interesting thing here is we get a little bit of insight into Gideon. Notice sometimes when God presents himself to somebody, the first question is, wait, who are you? Who are you? Who is this that's giving me this message? We don't actually get that from Gideon. We get a sense here that Gideon actually has awareness of who God is. That God is part of Gideon's philosophy, part of Gideon's way of life. Because the question about God when God speaks to him is not, wait, you, you exist? You're real? No, the question actually becomes more emotional of, where have you been? I've heard about you. I've heard about how you're the one that got us out of Egypt. I've heard about how you're the one who did mighty things for my ancestors. But where are you at right now? I'm in a wine press hiding because my enemies will strike me down if they see me with a little bit of food. Where are you, mighty God? Now, I actually think this is a positive thing. I think it's a positive thing because what that tells me is is that Gideon has a little bit of anger and animosity towards God. Which means he actually has a relationship with God. Notice, most of us don't get mad at philosophies. Most of us don't get mad in a passionate way at things. The things that we tend to have real fire-burning anger at are people. People where there's emotion. People where there's a relationship. People where there's a sense of you owe me something or I owe you something. And so what's actually beautiful about Gideon being a little upset about God showing up here is that that anger, that emotion shows that for Gideon, God isn't some concept. God is a person. And that anger means that Gideon had some expectations of how God would behave in his life. And because he's not doing that, there's a little bit of a rift. And I share this with you, brothers and sisters, because I know some people who act like they never get mad at God. If you haven't been fiery, angry with God at some point in your life, I don't think you have a good relationship with Him. I can't find you a verse in the Bible that says that, but I'm just going to give you that thought because that's been true in my own life. Anybody in my life that I have a significant relationship with, a relationship built on love, trust, and loyalty, a relationship that has reshaped my life, all those people I've had knockdown dragouts with at least once. Can any of you guys think of relationships not like that? I mean, I'll be real with you. If I meet with people who are going to get married and we're doing pre-marriage counseling and they tell me they don't argue, I then tell them my goal is, is to make them argue between now and the wedding. 
Because I can guarantee you two imperfect people intimately involved with each other in the most detailed items of life are going to disagree at times. And if they haven't learned how to do that in love and to do that with respect and to do that centering on the wisdom of God, then they have tough times waiting ahead of them. And if you don't believe me, just look throughout the Bible. Read throughout the book of Psalms and you will see this emotional roller coaster of how the psalmist talks to God. At some moments singing praise and singing poetry that talks about his beauty and his wisdom and his magnificence and his awesomeness. And then at other moments yelling at God going, you are my enemy. Why? Because for them, everything in life, everything, has some impact on their relationship with God. And so when things happen badly in their lives, they don't sit there and go, well, this has nothing to do with Him. No, they instead in those moments go, God, you could change this. You have that power. You have that ability. Why aren't you? An emotion is generated. What I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is if we are going to have a real relationship with God, if we are going to acknowledge His calls and hear them, there has to be a significant relationship there. Christianity is not about you coming to this book, pulling out a philosophy, a set of rules, a set of ways, and going, I will live my life in this construct. Christianity is about you encountering an awe-inspiring, life-changing, loved-filled relationship with the almighty creator of the universe. And that relationship redefining everything about who you are. But it is about that relationship. Nothing else. The more you and I veer towards this being about rules and regulations and a way of life, the more we look like the Pharisees than we do Jesus. And don't get me wrong. I, I am as a big of a believer in that there is moral rules that we need to abide by. That God clearly throughout His Bible tells us there is right and wrong and that we are to live by the right. But we do not do that for the sake of the rules. We're not doing that with the goal to be perfect. We abide by those things because we believe that in so doing, they bring us into the best relationship possible with Him. Amen. That when I abstain from this sin, it allows me to move my life more closely into that intimacy with God. And when I abstain from that darkness, I can really, truly live in that light. That's our belief. Look at verse 14. The Lord looked at them and said, Go, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you, and bring out my offering and lay it before you. 
And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the oak, and he presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take this meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. The angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that this was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. God said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Aborites. So, we have this initial meeting. And immediately what we see is, is that a battle of faith has occurred. God has presented a vision to Gideon that he is a mighty warrior and that he is called to do his work. Gideon has pushed back on one, hey, where have you been lately? And two, I need some proof. I need you to validate this for me. And so God, God appeases him. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. And he consumes all this food, all this meat, and a burst of fire and disappears. Gideon realizes that God has spoken to him. Now, the problem is, is not necessarily that here Gideon asked for a sign. The problem is, is what we're going to see continuing forward with Gideon, is that this becomes a trend. That for Gideon, there's never going to be enough. So look at what happens here in verse 25. It says, Now on the same night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and put down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that it is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten, ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asera which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city came to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal. And indeed, he has cut down the Assyria which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend with Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore on that day he named him Jerobabal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He blew a trumpet, and the Abezerites were called to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulon, and to Nephtali, and they also came to meet him. So I want you to see what's happening here. Gideon encounters God. God gives him proof that it's God. He then asks him to do something which, let's be honest, would be absolutely terrifying. 
I didn't give no qualms for Gideon being scared to tear down his father's altar to Baal and to cut down the Asherah pole. In that culture, Baal was considered God, like our God, Yahweh. To desecrate his temple, to desecrate his altar, would be asking for death. And even though Gideon knows that God is on his side, there is still a fear in his heart to do what he has asked. And I give all the credit that Gideon, even though he does it wimpily, that night gathers his men, knocks down the altar, cuts down the pole, and does exactly what God asks him to do. He does that exactly. That's courage. It takes courage for Gideon to do that. What I love too is the impact that courage has upon the people around him. Because notice, the altar is not Gideon's altar. Whose is it? It's his father's. But it is his father who actually serves as one of the first defenders because his father makes a very valid point. If Baal is real, does Baal need you and I to defend him? No. Right? If the God Yahweh can fight his own fights, then the God Baal can fight his own fights. And so if we really want to put this to the test, then let's just see what happens. His point is, is Baal has done nothing, and he will do nothing. But we are seeing God act right before our eyes. And so this action starts to inspire the people. It inspires the people, and you see God come to work where Gideon, barely doing anything, sends out for messengers, and the people who have been living in fear respond. And they respond in force. Gideon is now amassing an army, and almost kind of accidentally. We don't really see him driving or or striving for as much as just barely doing what God has asked him to do. And God bringing the fruits of that to him. In verse 36 it says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. But then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let it be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was all around the ground. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. And so 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them there for you there. 
Therefore it shall be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink the water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the three hundred men who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the three hundred men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the three hundred. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pure, your servant, to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward your hands will be strengthened, so that you may go down against that camp. So he went with Pira, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. And the Midianites and the Immaculites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend and said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the, tamp, the tent and struck it so that it fell. And it turned upside down so that the tent laid flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of the Midians into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches outside. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you will blow the trumpets all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just posted the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpet and broke the pitchers, they held their torches in their left hands and their trumpets in the right blowing and cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and the army ran crying as they fled. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as Beth Sherah toward Zerah, as far as the edge of Abel Meloah for Tabith. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Al-Manasseh, and they pursued the Midians. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill countries of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them, as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And so all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters. There's a few things I want you to pull from this. Because there's a lot that happens here, and a lot of it has to do with faith. The first thing that I want you to see as you look at this is when God calls, He is ready. Amen. When God calls, He is ready right now. Notice when God finds Gideon, Gideon is weak, Gideon has no self-esteem, 
Gideon has no army. Gideon is not in a place that he is ready to be a mighty warrior. Does God care? No. When God calls you and he wants you to act, he means now. He means right now. Brothers and sisters, one of the biggest mistakes you and I make in our lives when it comes to working for God is that you and I put a bunch of conditions on the things that He calls us to do. I have known so many believers who have heard God call them. Where God has put something on their hearts, God has put something in their spirits, God has given them a desire or an urge or a guilt to do something, but they won't do it. Until fill in the blank. We are beautiful at delaying God's call, not because of Him, but because of us. Oh, well, God wants me to teach, but I don't know enough right now. Well, I think I should share the gospel with that person, but I, you know, I need to just study up a little bit more. Well, you know, I think I'd like to serve there, but I've got to wait till I have a little bit more time. Or, you know, I'm going to wait till I have a little bit more, more money. Or I'm going to wait until this. Or I'm going to wait until that. Or I'm going to wait until this. Guess what's going to happen? You're never going to move. You're never going to move. Because there will always be a reason to wait for tomorrow. Always. What God teaches Gideon throughout this progression of events is, it doesn't matter if you're ready, Gideon. I'm ready. Amen. Notice, there's not some long training period where Gideon gets to learn that, wow, I'm actually far more capable than I thought I was. Right, if this was a movie, we would now get the Gideon training scene where God works with Gideon and Gideon discovers, wow, I have a great intellect. I'm actually very powerful and I'm unbelievably charismatic. I think I can do this. God doesn't do that with Gideon. Gideon shows up and goes, mighty warrior, let's go to work. And he goes, I'm weak. I'm a wimp. I don't care. Tonight, go take down the altar, burn it down. Let's go. It's about God being ready, not you. You're the instrument. You're the tool. He's the craftsman. He's the artist. He's the warrior. Notice, Gideon had been watching everything around him going, where's God? Acting like God's missing everything. The reality is, God has been planning and working and building and preparing. Brothers and sisters, when you think God's not active, He is probably more active than He's ever been. Just because you don't know what his game plan is doesn't mean there isn't a game plan. Do you think because that altar fell, all those people were suddenly ready to fight the Midianites? That that one action spurred everything? I don't. I think for a long period of time, God had been building up this angst and this worry and this resentment and this stress in this people. And I think these people had been waiting for something, waiting for a moment where they could rise up and show that they were no longer going to be pushed aside. And I think it was God, through His actions and through these moments, that spurred all of that. But it didn't happen in one moment. It happened with God every day, every moment, working behind the scenes. And so, brothers and sisters, when God calls, the first thing to know is He is ready. 
The second thing is, is God wants faith, but he doesn't ask for blind faith. I hear so many people who talk about having blind faith. That is not blind faith that happened to Gideon. One, an angel shows up. That's a sign. Two, the angel performs a miracle in front of Gideon. That's a sign. Three, Gideon then does something that should get him killed, and instead it's successful. That's a sign. Then Gideon sends out a signal to a people that are oppressed and have fleed and hidden, and a whole army shows up. That's a sign. Sign after sign after sign after sign after sign appears. Gideon thinking he's going to win that fight is not him going, I have blind faith. His faith is littered with evidence. Everywhere. And the same is true for you and I. I hear so many Christians nowadays who think they need to commit intellectual suicide to believe in creation. To believe that God made everything. Brothers and sisters, God's evidence of his fingerprints over creation are everywhere. They're everywhere. It takes far more faith, in my opinion, to believe in a world without God than it does to believe in a world with Him. Amen. He does not require blind faith. He has done unbelievable things throughout history to show you He's here. To show you He loves you. To show you that He has a purpose and a plan for you. Evidence is all around you. Everywhere. And so when you ask God for more signs, the thing you need to realize is, is you're not asking Him for a sign in the midst of nothing. What you're really acknowledging is, is that you are kind of the person that's just not going to move. I always remind you guys of Mary. Mary is an unbelievable person to me. Unbelievable person. Uh, unbelievable woman of faith. But she didn't blindly follow God. God shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. She gets pregnant. She goes and sees her cousin who tells her, God told me you're going to have a baby and it's going to be the savior of the world. Then she sees her fiance and he goes, God came to me and said, you're going to have a baby and it's going to be the savior of the world. Then she goes to dedicate him and a person shows up at the church and goes, I think you're carrying the savior of the world. Another person at the church sees him and goes, you're carrying the savior of the world. That's the savior right there. Then wise men show up and go, hey, you have the savior of the world in your hands. Shepherds show up on the birth and go, we're here to see the Messiah who you just had. That's your baby. Savior of the world. John the Baptist is calling in the wilderness, going, the Savior of the world is going to come. Her son walks by and he goes, there he is, there's the Savior of the world. Like, it's not like angels showed up and said, you're going to have a Savior, then nothing for years. No, the message is reiterated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Amen. And if we'll listen, I think he'll do the same thing for us. God is not asking you to blindly follow him. He is asking you to look at everything he has put in your life and realize he's there calling you. And that if you'll just take a baby step forward, he will make things happen. Do you see how quickly Gideon shifted his entire life? And it was one little moment at a time. One little moment of him responding to God showing up in his life. We don't need blind faith. We need faith, but not blind faith. Third, you are ready when He calls. 
You are ready when He calls. You may not believe it, but you are. God is not a fool. He's not an idiot. And He doesn't lose. If God comes to you and He speaks to you and He says, it's time, let's go. It's time, go. He doesn't make mistakes. Brothers and sisters, some of the biggest restrictions in your life, some of the things that are stopping you from encountering the blessings of God are not God, they are you. They are you because God has a plan for you. God has called to you. God is speaking to you. He is pleading with you to come to Him and you just won't move. Why? Why? Do you think He's wrong? Do you think He wants to hurt you? Do you think He's made a mistake? Does he, do you think He doesn't know who you are? Do you really think he's picked the wrong person? Now the almighty creator of the universe figured out how to defeat sin, figured out how to give everybody eternal life, figured out how to create the universe, but somehow picked the wrong person for this job. Missed that one up. I don't think so. And so my hope for you, brothers and sisters, is I don't really believe that there's anybody in this room where God's not speaking to you. I don't really believe that. I think there's some of you that when He speaks, you keep trying to muddy it. Keep trying to muddy it. Do you remember as a little kid where you would sometimes hear your mom calling you? But it was kind of like you didn't hear her a lot, so you just kind of went with maybe you weren't clear on what she was saying? Like you heard something and instead of going to investigate, like I think my mom's calling me. Instead you'd be like, let's go over here. Let's get over here, right over here. Because now I definitely can't hear over here. And then if she'd ask you about it, you could be like, well, I, I didn't, did you, were you calling me? I heard something, but then, by, uh, yeah, sorry. I think that's a lot of us with God. We hear a whisper, we hear a word. And instead of going, wait, what are you saying, Father? What? Talk to me? No, we start running the other way. We turn up the volume on everything around us and we start making excuses and we start putting reasons out there and we do everything we can to drown out His voice. Why? If He calls you, He's ready. If He calls you, He will give you evidence that He's there and He can do it. And if He calls you, you're ready too. Do you think Gideon would have ever been able to accomplish anything in his own life that would have made him suddenly think he was a mighty warrior? Do you think one day he would have just been planting and gone, you know what, I think I'm more capable than I am before. Maybe I could start an army. I don't think that would have ever happened. But God interacted in his life and Gideon took baby steps. I'll be real with you. Gideon's not even my favorite guy. Because he just, he's, he's a coward. Like, that doesn't change. He kind of stays a coward the whole time. But like, you'd think, like, after the fifth sign, he'd be like, you know what? I think God's here. We got this. That never happens. But you know what I do love about Gideon? He moves. It may not be huge leaps and bounds, but he takes little baby steps forward. 
And each of those baby steps leads them to somewhere different. And so my ask of you is, can you take a baby step today? Don't try to change your world. Don't try to live out your bucket list. Just today, for one moment, can you shut up? Can you listen to the voice of God? And then can you take one little step closer to Him? Just a little one. I think if you do that, I think if you do that, you will be amazed at what He's ready to do in your life. And I think if you string enough of those baby steps together, you might look like Gideon. You might wake up one day and go, not that long ago, I thought I was the weakest person in the weakest family in the weakest nation in the world. And now suddenly, I am God's mighty warrior. Just take a baby step. Amen. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way you love us. Father, that you in your mighty work, saving the universe, bringing light into darkness, bringing love into this world of hate, that you, Father, choose us to work with. That you let us be your partners, that you let us be your instruments is an honor greater than anything else I've ever known, Lord. Father, I pray that you will just speak loudly to these people. That, Father, you'll drown out the noise of the circumstances that surround us. And that you will have us trust in what you say. Father, in you, we can realize the greatest truth of who we are. In you, we can do work that will have value for eternity. In you, Father, we can find the passion and purpose that have been buried in our souls since the beginning of our creation. pray that when you call, we will listen and we will move. Father, we love you and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come forward with me. Brother James will be in the back. As Maria sings, if there's anything on your heart that you would just like to have someone praying with you about, feel free to come forward and we will be glad to pray with you. Uh, as always, part of the church is knowing that you're not alone on this journey. You have brothers and sisters in the faith who are there to help divide the pains and share the joys. So feel free to come forward during service or even after if you need to have someone pray with you. Maria. Let's all stand. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I'd fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you, 
fountain runs deep Your grace is more Grace is found Is where you are Where you are Lord, I am free Holiness is Christ in me Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you, so teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way When I cannot stand or fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay Lord, I need you Oh God, how I need you My one defense, my righteousness Oh God, how I need you My one defense, my righteousness Oh God, how I All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Um, I did warn everybody on the staff that it was probably going to be a long sermon today, so <laughs> I followed through on that. Um, I'm, I was always so blessed to be back with you guys. Just a couple things I uh, wanted to make sure uh, we're praying for. Uh, we have some folks in the service today who are going to be having, I believe, surgery this week. And so we just want to pray for God's guidance, uh, God's ability to use those doctors for their best talents possible, and that just God will uh, provide all the healing and guidance that is necessary. And then also we want to be praying for uh, Ken. Uh, his brother Roger passed away this week after his battle with cancer. Uh, so we are thankful, one, that his brother no longer is in pain and knows that peace that only God can bring. But, of course, the strength for the family, is, it's always hard to say goodbye. So please keep those folks in your prayers. Uh, and then just remember, you are people that have God's love, God's power, and God's self-discipline. And you guys have a mission. It's to go outside those doors and to make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Amen. So get to it. I love you guys. Have a great week. Where are you now when dark